Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Rob Dunn, Senior Vice Provost of Interdisciplinary Programs at North Carolina State University, and Dr. Pia Sorensen, a chemical biologist and head of the Science and Cooking Program at Harvard University, where she teaches almost a million students a year about science and cooking. They join me to talk today about their bioscience article, Nature Chefs, Uniting the Hidden Diversity of Food Making and Preparing Species Across the Tree of Life. As you might expect, our conversation was focused on food and the species that create it, including humans, and the evolutionary and ecological implications of food and food making. It was a fun and very far-ranging discussion, so with no further ado, let's go to the interview. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be in the show. Excited to be here. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about nature chefs, and I thought just to get us started for our listeners, it would be helpful to know exactly what that term means in this context. So I'll leave it to either of you. Um, you know, go right ahead and tell us what that's about. Well, so so in a number of us that there were authors in this paper were at a meeting um, a while ago now in, in Copenhagen that focused on taste, and as part of that meeting, I was presenting about the is it, it was all sorts of scientists and chefs and, and scholars from many different angles thinking about taste. And I was sort of the evolutionary ecologist in the group. And so as part of my talk, I was talking about fruits and the flavor of fruits and kind of as an, in an offhanded way happened to mention that, that of course fruits evolved so as to cater to animals that eat them and then disperse their seeds. And at that moment, or slightly later in the talk, one of the chefs stood up and said, do, do you mean to say that fruits are nature's chefs and there was a little more elaboration on the sentence but the, but that was the the take home and and it was this amazing moment because on the one hand it was for me as a biologist it was fascinating because it, it meant that the chef wasn't thinking about the fact that fruits evolved so as to play this role in nature that fruits evolved to to be food for other animals and so that that was news for the chef was interesting for me but the other piece that was so interesting was this this formulation of, of nature chefs. And as we started to talk about it in, in the group, and Pia was there, and Nabila, who's also on the paper, was was there. Um, Josh Evans was there. Uh, it became clear that this was, for biologists, actually a new formulation. This this idea that, that, that there are species that are in nature they have evolved so as to cater to the senses of other species and please them to achieve their evolutionary ends and that was a really fun idea and so it got it to start exploring well what does this mean how do you think about it and how do you think about this in a way that brings in the perspectives of chefs and physicists and ecologists and and all the sorts of people that we think are fun to have around the table and so that's how it sort of started yeah, and I think one thing I would add to that was that I think the very fact that it was already a very interdisciplinary meeting, so there were there were chefs there, researchers, food scientists, philosophers, humanists, and everyone who kind of was there was really excited by the idea. And so it just seemed like it was touching on something that that kind of brought us together, that we that we could talk about and bring our different perspectives um, to kind of to kind of think in a different way about our fields. And and, and we, owe, we owe that in big part to Ulam Moritzen, who's an amazing um, physicist turned uh, culinary physicist, for lack of a better term, who who has gathered during his career just an amazing group of people who think food is fascinating and wonderful and cool and a useful way to spend your life. Uh, 
life work. And, and, and so that, that was the room. It was people Ula thought were interesting to gather, to think, think about taste. And, and so, um, you know, this was one of the ideas that came out of that, that room, but there were many. Yeah. Yeah. Ola is amazing, uh, for, for bringing that together. Um, I think one thing that really, really interest, really sort of caught my, my interest with this was, so I, I, um, teach science with food. I teach physics and chemistry with food. And one of the things I always try to tell my students is that when chefs cook or when you cook in your kitchen, you are essentially manipulating all these biological materials. You're turning them into something that you may not want to eat into something that you do want to eat. And, and to do that, you kind of have certain materials at your disposal and you have a wide variety of techniques and processes at your disposal as well. And so I think what's striking about this nature's chef's idea is that when the sort of evolutionary selective pressures has a lot of those same materials to work with, uh, right? And 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 some of the kind of tricks and manipulations available are are the same. And so there's sort of this underlying science that is used by human chefs, but that is also available to nature's chefs. Pia, do you want to give an example of one of those sort of commonalities? Um, so one of the, can I take an example from the paper, which I love? So yes, anyone nodding? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so one of so one of the um, one kind of key thing that chefs do is they want to manipulate the viscosity of fluids. Um, a common way to do it is to make various sauces. So you want a sauce that is, let's say you're making a mac and cheese sauce. You want it to be thick enough to cling to your food. Um, and sometimes if you're making more of a soup, you want it to be thin enough so that it's kind of nice and slurpy and has that watery slurp to it. Um, and um, and there are kind of parallels in in all of cooking through this. So if you're if you're into into pastry baking, then you know that you can manipulate the the viscosity of sugar by boiling it, and then the sugar solution becomes thicker and thicker. Um, so, for example, when you uh, make maple syrup from from uh, tree sap part of the process is to slowly boil it down and reduce it so that you get a thicker syrup that clings to your pancakes that you can kind of scoop up and 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 eat with your food so there, there is a parallel with this in um in nectar which i would never have this is an example of something i would have never known if i had not talked with this group of people um where essentially um birds so let's see if i get this right so so there there are flowers that have a higher nectar content mean sorry a higher sugar content in their nectar something like 35 percent and those tend to cater to insects that kind of dip their tongue and kind of scoop up scoop up the nectar that way um and then on the other hand birds and butterflies who would kind of suck up the liquid they have tend to to then feed on flowers that have a lower sugar content in their nectar and and so a higher sugar content means more viscous and a lower sugar content means less viscous and so this is an example of how how nature is essentially using that same idea of how you can manipulate the viscosity simply by having more or less um sugar in in a fluid and and kind of reaching reaching the goal um, that that is your goal as the nature chef. 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me, um, you know, what, one of the, the challenges to thinking about these ideas is that, you know, of course, a human chef is bringing consciousness into this decision making and natural selection is this unconscious process that favors things that, um, that, that work given the conditions. Uh, and, and yet they're both responding to the palates of organisms and to the biophysics of how organisms eat, um, the details of their tongues and noses and even their visual systems. And, and so through processes that are a little bit different, you know, one more conscious and, and, and one much more about natural selection, you get these very similar responses. And then sometimes you get different responses, and that's interesting too. Um, and for me, like that's a really interesting juxtaposition, and it allows this back and forth. And so you think about, well, what can chefs learn from from what's happening in nectar or what's happening with fruit and then and then vice versa what can we learn about new ways to study nectar or fruit th- through thinking like a chef or thinking like a physicist who who works with chefs like pia um and then for me the uh, one of the other really fun things has been that as evolutionary biologists and ecologists these instances of nature chefs have been thought about in different fields separately and so the people who study fruit might talk to the people who study nectar because they know them personally. They go to the, you know, they meet up at a bar, but the, they're, they're not studying um, those two systems in close collaboration. And they're certainly not studying them in collaboration with the insects that produce food for their mates or the, the mussels, the freshwater mussels that produce false food to attract fish to eat the mussels. And so this, this concept sort of allows us to start to look across these different systems at this phenomenon that we hadn't realized w- was part of this, this um, greater whole. And so I think it's going to open up all sorts of new questions. Uh, and that, for me, is a really fun part. And then there are things that, you know, that human chefs do that, nat- that nature chefs, I mean, human chefs are one of nature chefs, but the, the human chefs do that uh, non-human nature chefs do don't seem to do and then those become interesting too and, and so it, it opens up all these questions and that that for me is one of my favorite parts of of the conversations that have resulted here yeah i'm kind of interested to key in on the idea that um you know this sort of gives us a, a new lens for looking at all of these questions you know um within nature you know it's Traditionally, as you mentioned, you know, you would have um, people kind of focused on a relatively narrow area of, you know, of evolution, say, um, whereas this kind of gives us the ability to, you know, look at production of, of food or food mimics as its own thing, as a field or a subfield in its own right. Is that kind of what's at work here? Yeah. yeah, And, and, what, and you know, P and I and the rest of the team have seen this in the collaboration. And so we started with the small group that emerged from that meeting and then we pulled in other people and and so for example brad brad taylor who's an aquatic ecologist um became a really key part of this coordinating this this effort and and thinking about these ideas and brad brought in all these examples from nature chefs and aquatic ecosystems that, that, that we didn't know about that the rest of the people in the conversation weren't even aware of and and so i think bringing this community together has allowed us to have this bigger vision. Um, and then I think having the human chefs and the or people who think about human chefs 
along with the ecologists and evolutionary biologists, it's also shown us some of these little weird intricacies. And so w- one that I really like is that if you think about human chefs, a lot of what human chefs try to do is to create foods that are that either are meat or are relatively meaty. And so, you know, a lot of um, the great work of human chefs focuses on meat. But then you also have things like um, stinky fermented tofu or washed rind cheeses that become uh, meaty in terms of their aroma profiles and even their texture. And, and so then one of the questions, if you turn back to nature chefs, um, is, well, where do we see that in nature? And it turns out it doesn't seem to be very common that, very, for example, very few fruits seem to be meaty. And then that opens up this new question, well, wh- why aren't there more fruits that are meaty? You know, wh- what's going on there that, 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 that that's not evolved uh, more often? And it seems to have, you know, two partial answers right now. And I think, you know, we'll keep exploring it. And, and um, one seems to be that, you know, maybe that's an, ex- an expensive kind of food to produce for plants. Um, a- another may be that meat eaters or might not be very good uh, service providers for plants, you know, that the meat eaters tend to be rare, you know, think about a tiger, there aren't many tigers in a place. And so they're not maybe very reliable dispersers. But then the other thing we realized is that there are actually some cases where fruits produce that the plants produce relatively meaty fruits that smell a little bit more animalian. And, and so something like that is really intriguing evolutionarily. But, it, but if we reconnect it with the human chefs, it's also potentially interesting in an applied way because if we can figure out how some of those meaty fruits produce meaty aromas, meaty flavors, and attract carnivores, we can actually co-opt some of those insights to make fake meats more meat-like in a way that, that maybe is uh, relatively cheap and sustainable. And so there's this, this openness, this coming together across disciplines, and this interplay that I think offers opportunity. And Pia, did you have more thoughts on that, or more succinct thoughts than my rambling? Um, no, that, that's a. I think that's a great summary of an example where 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 that where that interplay would is just such an invitation to innovation. And I think there there are so many examples. There is um, um, there's this example of jackfruit, which has a very very meaty texture. In fact. Um, it's a common meat substitute that's that's actually on the market, and that actually does cater to carnivores, which is another one of those kind of strange example where where the two main components of food, flavor and texture, are are so important, and that is an example of where the texture really plays an important role. I think um, the other the other thought I have about this is that interesting interplay that happens between what a chef, whether it's a human chef or a nature chef, what they want to produce and what they have available to them. So so a a human chef is going to be limited by the ingredients that are available. And and similarly, um, a nature chef is going to be limited by the kind of stoichiometry that's 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 there in the environment. So nitrogen, for example, is a is a is rare. And so as 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 a nature's chef who is who wants to produce food with nitrogen, they have to balance their their own nitrogen needs with what they could produce. And um 
there's this parallel to nature's chef, especially kind of haute cuisine and modernist chefs who tend to constantly be innovating and exploring and being creative. It's it's a very common um, thing for them to impose some kind of restriction on their creativity. Um, so there are some examples of this from Virgilio Martinez in Peru, who who will only cook things from certain altitudes in, within Peru or uh, within the Nordic cuisine movement, where if you want acidity in a dish, maybe you would not include lemon because it's not a local ingredient. Maybe you would instead go to gooseberries or some other local ingredient. And by doing that, they're they're kind of pushing their creative boundaries. And I think in similar ways, some of those restrictions and the kind of sort of nature's chef creativity um, is also related to these restrictions in the environment for, for nature's chefs. Yeah, that's a really fascinating parallel um, that, you know, I, I enjoyed reading about in the paper. Um, I'm hoping we could talk a little bit about, you know, some of the different ways in which nature's chefs produce food or uh, produce fake food. You know, what are what are sort of the, the general approaches that uh, you know, nature tends to take, you know, I, I note that you, you cite them as three broad categories, food, drink, and lures, within the subsections of real meals and mimics. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, um, just broadly speaking, what, what sorts of categories exist among those three? And, um, you know, what sorts of examples do we see within them? Yeah, so yeah, so in, in, in general, to sort of um, bring back those themes, I mean, we think about nature chefs offering food, we think about na- nature chefs offering drinks, and, and then lures. And so the, the foods are things like like fruit or and insects. And, and this is, uh, for insect people, this is so obvious. Like, who doesn't know about this? But in many insects, when, when insects are mating, the male offers a little food reward to the female. Um, and so that's actually a food in the same way that a fruit is. The evolutionary um, dynamics are slightly different, but it's very fruit-like. Uh, and so that's another food item. For drinks, we have things like nectar, but nectar can take many forms. And then for lures, we there are many, many kinds of lures in nature, uh, which in general is a category of, of, of foods that, that attract something to eat, but then have tricked that, that, that consumer in some way or another. And there's uh, a rich diversity in the, in the kinds of trickery that is involved there. And... You know, I, th- I think if we revisit this in 10 years, you know, our, our categorizations will shift and and expand. But but in terms of where we are now and thinking about these things, that was a good first rough cut. Um, and and there are, each of those is a little bit different in terms of which senses they, they appeal to and how they do it. And so, you know, fruits very often have to attract an animal consumer first from a relatively far distance. And so imagine you're trying to attract a primate that's going through the canopy and has to, to spot you. And so there are visual cues. And then there are intermediate distance olfactory cues. And then the fruit also has to re- reward um, the consumer with uh, taste and flavor cues, which are the, you know, these are taste receptors, the aromas that go into the, the back of the nose, it's mouthfeel, it's all those pieces. And so that that's that food category, which which gets complex and wonderful. And then the drink category, often the drink, which, um, you know, the most common case is nectar, is relatively simple, but very often the, the organism that's providing the drink 
has evolved complex ways to uh, to signal that the drink is there and to reward the senses of the animal that's looking for a drink. And so, you know, the existence of flowers is really that reward system. And they're, you know, we, we've, we've debated in our group, are they more like billboards? Is it more like plating food? Like what, what exactly is the flower relative to the drink and, and the nature chef context? And, you know, we'll continue to debate, but it, but it's something in that it's fear, you know, it, it attracts the, the organism, but it also enhances the experience when the organism is, is drinking the nectar and, and makes the organism more like, uh, likely to, to, to get there and drink. And so that's that sort of drink realm. And then the lures, um, you know, we have a pretty good diversity of, of lures in the, in the paper, but I suspect when people read the paper, we'll immediately get emails of, well, why didn't you include this lure that everybody knows about from this species that only lives at high elevations and, um, you know, and, and, uh, at the east in the Eastern end of Nepal. Um, but, but the lures that we see include, uh, animals that use their tongues to lose, lure other species and then eat them. They include animals that use their tails to lure other species and eat them. They include mussels that produce uh, things that look like fish or look like other prey items so that fish go near enough to the mussel that the mussel can then release its eggs into the fish where they then undergo their next life stage. And, and, and so th- that's a different sort of realm in the I think what's useful about the categories is that the how an organism appeals to its consumer seems to be slightly different in those different categories. That's perfect. And you know, one thing that particularly had caught my eye was the discussion of problem diners and the way that one can draw a parallel between human chefs or restaurants and you know uh, something taking place in the natural world. Um, so you know. One of the one of the examples referred to, um, you know, the ways that fruit might, for, you know, fruit making plants might, for instance, you know, want to produce satiety, um, you know, within their consumers. Uh, I assume so that they would move on, and how that might be similar to, you know, the way that a restaurant might serve food that could be, you know, eaten quickly or something like that. So I was I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about that and the ways that the food that's produced can have an influence on the behaviors of the consumers. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. Pia, you want to start us off? I mean, I, th- I think I think there's so many examples in the food industry for starters, right? Where where all kinds of things are done to attract our attention or to just make the food look bigger or better or more colorful, and you know everything from adding air to ice cream or to bread or to to um, a- adding color, um, a- adjusting the light. And so there, I think there's so many parallels to to that. And then I think there are all these interesting ways in which, and this may be a little bit off topic in a way, but there are all these interesting ways in which modernist chefs play with those expectations. Um, so a, a modernist chef may um, produce, so one of my favorite examples is uh, this little crab apple at Mugaritz restaurant in Spain which has been coated with rhizopus. So it looks like a perfectly moldy apple and uh, nothing you would ever eat, but but it's perfectly safe and it's delicious and and it's intentionally there to play with our perception of what what um, what what is edible and what is not and kind of to play with that boundary. Um, do you want to continue with with some of the other examples, Rob? Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. I mean, I think that's also a good example of um 
you know, there are these cases that emerge in, in haute cuisine that um, we don't see great examples of in nature, but but it's also possible we're not, you know, n- nature is infinitely dimensional. And, and so that's um, maybe that we haven't, we just didn't bring the right person to the team yet. Uh, and so, so that example of revulsion um, and the extent to which, you know, some chefs are really playing with different emotions. And, and, and so there are a number of restaurants now where you go and you know, part of your experience is to feel uncomfortable or disgusted. Um, and I, I can't, I mean, we don't have any examples and I can't think of examples where nature chefs are, are doing that. Uh, and so, you know, there are these interesting things that become different. Um, but that be, but that behavioral ma- manipulation, if we step back to the broader idea is really common. Um, and so, you know, fruits that want to, convince animals that are eating them that they're full you know and that from a fruits perspective that's very advantageous because if you stay in a tree all day and you just keep eating the fruits well you're going to deposit the the seeds of the fruit right under the same tree and they're going to have the same fate as if if they were never dispersed in the first place and so for the the tree there's selective pressure favoring uh evolutionary innovation that that, that makes the animal uh, go farther. Or, I mean, a really great example of this is mistletoes. And so mistletoe fruits, uh, they've evolved to, well, mistletoe plants grow on other trees. They're parasitic. And from a dispersal perspective, that's really tricky because you have to get from one tree to another tree. But most of the time, birds poop out seeds under the ground. And if they land on the ground, they die. Well, mistletoes have evolved this amazing adaptation where, where the coating of the seed is sticky and slimy. And, and so when the, when the bird poops out the seed, it has to use its foot to kind of scrape the seed off of, of its backside. And, it, and, it, and the best way to do that is for it to be on a branch. And so it ends up scraping the seed off onto the branch. And, and so, that, I mean, that's a really intricate manipulation of consumer behavior you know and i and i i hope that there aren't any human chefs right now that are trying to manipulate this subsequent bathroom behavior of consumers but but who knows you know the chef world's a big world with lots going on um but but there's a there's a lot of evolutionary innovation in that space and you know sometimes fruits and other nature chefs are also trying to convince some species not to come to the table and and so there are quite a few fruits that are um, palatable and delicious for the intended consumer, uh, but unpalatable or bad, just bad tasting, uh, or, or even dangerous for other consumers. And so the biology of mammals and birds is, is different enough that if a fruit wants to cater to birds, it, it simultaneously can use biochemistry to... Uh, make itself less attractive to mammals and vice versa. No, a, a great example of that is capsaicin, which is the the spicy molecule in chili peppers. So there is this idea that capsaicin may have evolved as a way to deter uh, rodents from from eating them. And uh, birds eat them just fine. They're not they're not um, susceptible to that spiciness at all. And, and, and to layer back on top of that, you know, when, it, when a human chef then experiments with chili peppers, they're kind of doing artwork on top of that evolutionary story. You know, they're playing with the, the perceived danger of the chili. They're playing with that pain sensation. 
And, and so, you know, they're engaging that evolutionary story, I mean, often unknowingly. Um, and, and so there's this kind of layering of these, these two aspects to the, to the world of food that I think is really intriguing. And, and then I, and then I, I hope um, that there are chefs that find this paper useful in that way, that it allows them, them some new, new contexts in which to think about that interplay between the biology of the world around them and what they're offering to humans. And I guess that leads me to a question then about, you know, perhaps what's up with us uh, that we like to eat these capsaicin-bearing, um, you know, uh, fruits? What Do we know why people like them? And, you know, do other do other animals that are, you know, capable of experiencing the burn of a chili, um, do they enjoy them? Or is it a pretty much an effective deterrent for mammalian species except people? So there's a... Um, there's work on this by psychologists and there's work on this by evolutionary biologists. And what the psychologists have shown is that um, mo most other mammals just won't eat chili pe peppers. You know, there's a report in the, the um, w one study of a dog named Moose, and I can remember the name of the dog, but not the scientist, suddenly. Uh, and, and Moose, this individual dog, seemed to have learned to like chili peppers. And so there, there are these cases, but in general, dogs don't... Um, if I have more difficulty learning to like chili peppers unless they really see their owner appreciating them. And so there's this learning piece. Um, chimps can learn to like chili peppers uh, if they see humans eat them and if there's this sort of learning component. And so there are some species that seem to be able to conditionally learn to like them. But I, I would say that the two going hypotheses with humans, one is that historically the chili peppers offered this additional role of a little bit of... Um, pathogen control in foods that were left out for a long time. And there is evidence that they, they can help control path pathogens. And so you can leave a, like if you go to Central America and you see a jar of um, great looking sauce that's open and has been on the table for six months, it's probably still okay to use because the chilies, um, you know, and often the lime and salt together are pretty good deterrents to some foodborne illnesses. But then the other, idea is it's a little bit like going to a scary movie that we get a little bit of an endorphin pump from the experience of something that that's like pain but is not actually posing us a real danger and and so maybe maybe part of it's just a creepy feature of the human uh human brain in a modern context right and I, you know i think one of the interesting things here that we're talking about is that you know the human responses to you know food um is like largely aesthetic in a lot of ways. You know, we we appreciate complexities about you know the food and and um, the presentation, the the way it appears, the way it tastes, the mouthfeel, etc. Um, do we have any reason to believe that you know animals other than humans are experiencing food in sort of the same ways? Um, you know, or uh, do we have any insights into you know how they perceive these things that are you know the that are being prepared for them? Um. Well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go quickly, and I, I know I just went on, so I'll try to be pithy. But so Monica Sanchez and I wrote a book about this, about deliciousness across species. And what we what we argue, and P and I have talked about this a lot, lot is that the, you know the the senses of animals in general uh, that relate to eating are all relating to re rewarding uh, the consumption of some things and penalizing the consumption of others. And, and so our taste receptors associated with pleasure are also associated with pleasure in other animals. And so, so there's no reason to think that when other animals are making those choices, 
that, that it's not associ- associated with pleasurable outcomes for those animals. And in fact, we see lots of evidence that, for example, chimps will eat lots of foods that are that taste good to them, but are not necessarily healthy and don't necessarily represent a good energy expenditure. Um, and, and so I think, you know, as you look across animals, my own perspective would be that in, in general, when they eat, they're trying to find delicious things. And, and, some, and typically those so happen to also provide what they need in terms of nutrition. But what they're trying to do first and form, foremost is use their senses to judge delicious versus non-delicious. Um, yeah, I don't know. Pia, what, what do you think? Do you buy the, um, this frame? I think it's a very interesting frame to think about. And some of the examples that come to mind are these examples of cats who continue to hunt even after they're full. And there's a great dolphin example as well that I can't remember the details of now. But I think there are there are some indications of this that would be really great to look into more. Um, very, very cool to think about. Good question. Yeah, and that leads me to an, an obvious next question, which is, you know, what sorts of areas um, would the two of you like to see studied next? You know, what what sorts of things um, might offer us the greatest possible insights into, you know, the ways that, um, you know, nature is preparing foods for itself or humans are preparing food for each other? Oh, one of the things I was fascinated by, and I had no idea this was the case, was how when we think about cooking, we so often think about using heat. Right. And, and and of course, there are many, many other things that are involved when we cook all kinds of food preparations, but that is often the kind of go to definition. And I had no idea that heat also um, serves a role in within nature's chefs. There are some examples of flowers producing heat. There are some examples of bees that generate um, heat and that helps the lactic acid fermentation of their their uh, their honey and pollen mixture, and so this idea that 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 the, the sort of looking at the techniques that are common in human cooking and and looking at finding further examples um, in nature and exploring how that really works and and the effect that that has, I think there's a lot of potential there for really interesting discoveries. Yeah, I mean, P.S. examples are great ones, and I mean, I, um, I mean, I think if you ask the different authors of the paper, we'd all have favorite things that lead off in different directions. I mean, for me, um, I mean, I, I'm really interested in the idea that that many different um, animals seem to employ fermentation and modifying their food, which is sort of a an angle on this nature's chef con- concept. But to think about the ways in which they're um, employing techniques to to curate that that fermentation, and so the, in the Pia's example, the the bees are fermenting in some cases pollen, in other cases nectar. Um, th- there are ants that employ fermentation. Hyenas will hide their food in a way that looks like it's actually curing in some cases, um, and and so I think that 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 processing of the the, the food by um, some animals is a really interesting feature of this t- too. And to what extent is some of that processing producing outcomes that, that taste better, um, which, which is kind of a footnote to the, the paper, but it's an interesting piece. I also think the the meaty fruits is for me a really um, intriguing case. And I, I'd love to personally study those a little bit more and see what's going on there. 
Yeah, and I would add to this, I would love to see what chefs would do with this, because I can see them reading this and learning about this and just being really inspired by the possibilities within the culinary world. Um, so I, I uh, we, we should talk to some of the people on the team, but also I'd love to hear what people, uh, what people's response to this is when they hear it. Uh, and I hope we'll get some, uh, get some ideas for other things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like, you know, there will be uh, perhaps future developments to uh, hear from both within the academic literature and also maybe even within restaurants. I should warn our listeners, we've only scratched the surface here today, um, but that's, of course, all you can do in the context of a, a podcast. I encourage everyone to go and read the article. It's fascinating with many, many great examples and quite a lot to learn. Uh, I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me today. It's been great. It was such a pleasure. It was great, great to give you a taste. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.